Good morning. My name is Danny, and I realized this morning that I've been around for 11 years. I was uh, on a task force that uh, assisted in the planting of the Artisan Church. I also realized, looking in the mirror today, that my hair turned white in 11 years. I've been connected to you. Uh, I sort of retired from pastoring some years ago, and, uh, and again, the last time was in, uh, in April, and then Nelson came calling and asked if I would uh, sit with the leadership and, uh, and the people of Artisan to walk through uh, the issues of reality, and so uh, that's what I've been doing, and uh, I'm enjoying Nelson and Scott and Terry and Rebecca and the, the rest of you as I'm the old guy in the room. I'm the youngest of five and I've never been the oldest guy before. So uh, it's quite a journey learning the language. And I, the new language that I'm learning is artisan speak. And, uh, and uh, that's a whole different language than I've had in 38 years of uh, pastoring. But it's a delight for me to be around and, and part of this vibrant community that I hope I'll be around long enough to really get to know better. Uh, Nelson pressed me into, uh, into this sermon series, Lessons in Love, and today it's the challenge of love. I am going to recount four encounters in the life of Jesus in my own words and then come back and end with the text that he's given me for the, for the day, uh, 1 John 3, 11 to 24. The first encounter is my favorite story in the New Testament, the story of Jesus and the woman at the well found in John 4, 1 to 42. I'm not going to read that text. I would invite you to read that through because there's a whole number of profound things that happen in that story that I'm not going to refer to here, but uh, it's going to sort of hit the high points that relate to us today. In John 4, it says right at the beginning, Jesus is in trouble with his men, with, with the political problems in Jerusalem, and so they head out and they had to go to Samaria. Interesting word, they had to go. Samaria is straight north of Jerusalem. I've lived in Jerusalem on a number of occasions, once in 19 months, and have been back uh, probably a couple of dozen times. It's familiar territory for me. Normally the people from Nazareth up in the north where Jesus was and people, when they went to and from Jerusalem, from Nazareth, which they had to do two or three times a year, they usually went down into the Jordan Valley and up the Jezreel Valley, walked on the flatland about 140, 150 kilometers. Sometimes they went straight through 100 kilometers, walking through the hill country and through the land of the Samaritans. But it was a big headache to do so, not only physically, but spiritually and relationally. The Samaritans and the Jews literally hated each other and stayed away from one another. So for Jesus to all of a sudden be in Samaria, he's fighting uh, the sort of the rules of the game. And so in John 4, we have all of a sudden, here's Jesus in Sychar or Shechem, or today it's called Nablus. It's a Palestinian center of the community, and to this day, the, the Israelis can't go to Nablus. And so the, uh, the tensions continue. Uh, scholars believe that in Jesus' time, there were about a million Samaritans in the area or spread out a little bit, but mostly in the area today, there are less than 800. They're a shrinking community, uh, but there's a vestige of them left, and I've, I've met some of the people in this location, and, uh, and it's still dynamic to be part of it. Anyway, in our biblical story, Jesus comes to Sychar with his followers, uh, his disciples, 
Uh, he sits down at Jacob's well, which we know from the Old Testament story, and I'm going to sort of assume that most of you know this story, and I hope if you don't, I tell enough of it that it makes sense. He sits down to rest. He's tired. It's midday. He sits at Jacob's well, and a woman comes to get water. There's already, there's already a question. What is a woman doing at a well at midday? It's a very, very hot country, and you don't go for water at noonday. So it means that she's probably off the edge socially, and she's probably only allowed to go to this well and at midday when the other people aren't around. Anyway, there she comes to the well. Jesus is sitting there, and he has the audacity to talk to her. And he says, would you give me some water? And she says, excuse me? You want water from me? One, you're not supposed to be talking to me. You're Jewish. I'm Samaritan. And two, I'm a woman. You're not supposed to talk to me. And three, if I touch the water container that you take water from, you are going to be unclean. Who do you think you are? Jesus, in his own way, says, you'd be surprised who I am. And immediately you get the sense that there's this very dynamic, rich conversation between two, uh, between the two of them that continues, and I'll just look at a few of the little highlights of it. And because she is a woman with the reputation that she has, I think there's a kind of cheekiness to her, a bravado, which, which sets up really lively dynamic and conversation. And I have a sense that Jesus and this woman enjoyed this conversation. It was like you know, getting the waiter that really wants to natter at you and you want to natter back, and so it gets, it gets really interesting. Anyway, uh, he meets her, he asks for water, she says, no, uh, I can't give you water, but we don't know whether she eventually gives him some. Then they get into a conversation about Jews and Samaritans, and, and they push back and forth a bit, and then he says, well, in that case, at the point they're on, he says, go get your husband. And I think the air stops for a minute because she has to decide what she's going to say then because she's a woman that's had an, a, n a number of relationships. And, and I had, in my uh, uh, postgraduate work in Jerusalem, had three rabbis for, uh, for teachers, and they helped me to understand most of these New Testament texts in a brand new way and said that, uh, that what happens when she says, I have no husband, is she actually gets coy. I have no husband. In other words, in Jewish Samaritan lingo, she may have been suggesting, according to my rabbi, this isn't my interpretation because I've offended some women by using this interpretation, she is saying, I might be available. He pushes back and says, well, I know that you've had five other men and, they were, and this one isn't your husband either. And all of a sudden she realized, oh, oh, I'm on dangerous ground. This guy knows too much. So then she gets religious, which is what we often do. When you're in a, in a discussion that you want to end, get religious and they'll stop talking. So then she talks about, you are a prophet. You sound like a prophet. She tries to stroke his ego a bit. Everybody wants to be a prophet when you're living in Israel. And there are still many there that are trying to be prophets. And, and that doesn't work. They go back and forth. And then she says, I recognize you as a messiah. And the conversation is absolutely electric. But in the end, really what has happened here, or all the way through, Jesus has broken the social rules with her. He's broken the gender rules. He's broken religious rules. He has 
played fast and loose with all the 613 laws that he, as an Orthodox Jew, is to live by with this Samaritan woman. And at that point, the men of his group come back, and they, of course, typical narrow men of their age and place, want to know why he's talking to this woman. She gets the message that she's an outcast. She should not be talking to their leader. She uses an excuse because by this time she wants to talk about this man to somebody else because she has been so favored by him. She's been so touched by the way he's talked to her despite the differences that uh, she wants to go and tell her friends. So she heads out. She goes back to her village or the part of the village where she's come from and says, I'm paraphrasing, I've met a man like I've never met before. And my rabbi teacher said, and they would have said, we've heard that before. And she says, no, no, this is different. And they believe her. And they go back with her to meet this Jesus. Because what has Jesus done to her? He acknowledges her as a person, which in her village she probably had seldom ever been acknowledged as a real person. He heard her. He validated her even while verbally sparring with her, and again, I sense that they enjoyed the repartee, in the end, he strokes her significance, and she experiences love like she hasn't experienced it before. This has become a model for me to understand when we are in conversation with people, and I dare say, in our, in our community as artisan, if in our community with the LGBTQ community are people that we're talking to, those of us who are in leadership and represent the old high white man's hierarchy of heterosexuality, if they don't feel as loved as this woman felt, we should not open our mouths to speak. This woman felt so incredibly loved and cared for that she was attracted to the man Jesus and if you look through, and if it's important to you about the place of women in any society, she was the first evangelist in the New Testament. The first person to pronounce that Jesus was risen was a woman, and the first person to, to be an evangelist was a woman, and it was a Samaritan again, raised up to incredible heights. Second story, John 8, verses 1 to 11, another encounter between Jesus and a woman. Jesus is a traveling, itinerant rabbi, speaker, evangelist, whatever you would call him. He's got this gaggle of people around him, and when he's in Jerusalem, he goes onto the Temple Mount, the big platform where we see the Golden Dome now, sits down on a rock or whatever is there for him, and he does his teaching, and his followers and the listeners gather around to listen. Of course, it's a verbal community. It was then, and it still is now, by and large, and they gathered around. Scholars tell us that there were probably a hundred rabbis who were saying they were the Messiah in that time, moving in and off the Temple Mounts at those times, and Jesus was just another one of them for the most part. While he's there, the bad guys, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, bring him a woman who's been caught in adultery, is the text, is the wording in most of our Bibles. Caught in adultery, woman. So it's interesting again, it's just a woman that's brought. Where's the man? He's left out of this. But they're not brought, she's not brought necessarily for her own shame, although 
it is not unlike the teachers of the law and the Pharisees to shame Jewish women who've been caught in adultery. My rabbi said, you should probably know, and he says, and I don't think in your puritanical North American evangelical churches you're going to announce that she was probably stripped naked so that her shame would be incredibly intense. Not only what was happening in society at that time, all the Roman and the Greek influence through Palestine and Israel at the time, the Jewish people abhorred nakedness. The Greek and Roman athletes ran through the streets naked and just horrified the Jewish people. So it got to be used by the Pharisees to shame especially women when they were caught in compromising sin and they would strip her naked. What do we have in our story? They present her, the Pharisees present her to Jesus to shame her and to trick Jesus because they're already upset that he's, he's causing trouble in the land in terms of how he is interpreting what it means to follow God. And as they're talking to her that she's been caught in adultery and, what, and that he should remember and should add to their call that she should be stoned to death because in the laws of the land, a woman caught in adultery of the Jewish faith is to be stoned. He leans over in the story, and this has been discussed by scholars for generations and generations, for hundreds of years already. He reaches over, he can reach the ground and the sand in the ground, and he starts to write in the sand with his hand. And what happens? The people who were all staring at the woman now are looking to see what Jesus is writing. What has happened to their attention? It has moved from the woman to what he's writing. And she gets a chance to not be the center of attention all of a sudden. One of the female rabbis I knew said that it was probably at that point that another woman in the crowd, probably with a coat or a cloak or a blanket, was able to cover her and give her a sense of who she was. Again in the conversation, then he draws again, he diverts that attention from her, and then he says to the, to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, okay, it's true. The law says we are to stone this woman to death now. Those of you that are without sin, that have lived to the 613 laws in the nth degree, whoever you are, throw the first stone. And that's where he draws the second time, and he doesn't even watch. But he can probably sense, and he knows over his eyebrows, or under his eyebrows, that the men move away because they all realize that they are not righteous enough to throw the first stone. Finally, he looks up, and she's the only one left. And he says, where are they? She says, they're gone. He says, do they condemn you? She says, no, they don't. And so he says, then I don't condemn you either. Incredible. I don't condemn you either. But he says, don't sin anymore. He gives her this little cue on how to live well. So what is the magic of what Jesus does here, if we could call it that? He acknowledges her as a person. He raises her awareness of her dignity. She has gone from the absolute, complete shame and he raises her as a, in, as a human, as a person. After having given her a breather already, he turns the crowd from looking at her to looking at themselves. 
and her shame is diverted and it is lifted, and her guilt is taken away and she is set free. And he declares again, I can't say this too many times, how in a tradition now of 1,500 years of the church being condemnatory, that Jesus says to this woman, then I have no condemnation for you either. He exhibits incredible care for this woman. He rescues her, he frees her, he sends her home significantly healed, and he gives her a key to a better life. In the end, he reveals to her his compassion for her, and she experiences love from this man, this stranger. Third story, Jesus with his followers again in John 21, 1 to 19, except what's happened now we're in the post-execution post and resurrection. Peter and the boys have gone back to the Sea of Galilee to fish again. They're depressed, the dream is dead, they're gone, they don't know what to do. In the meantime, we might as well do what we know how. We need some money, and they're out fishing. And they can't catch any fish. And then they hear a voice from the shoreline. And the shoreline at the northern part of the Sea of Galilee where they would have been fishing has got quite a steep cliff on it or, or at least you know, a half cliff. And they hear someone shout, throw your nets on the other side. Uh, again, my rabbi said, uh, with apologies to you evangelical Christians, it's not necessarily all a miracle that happens in the north because the fishermen of the Galilee have almost always had a young man usually standing on the hillside because when the sun is at a certain angle, you can see where the schools of fish are in the Sea of Galilee. And anyway, so that only explains, it. I'm not going to rule out a miracle there, but what it means is that when he shouted, throw your net on the other side, it was common for fishermen to throw the net on the other side when somebody told them, throw the fish on the other side, or the net on the other side, because it was common practice for fishermen. They throw it, fills up, they got a problem, they got to try to pull all the fish to the shore now, and it's just a lot of work. They get close enough to the fish, and there he's already got, Jesus got the barbecue ready. And there's this awkward silence around. He says, come on, come and eat breakfast. Bring me some more fish, add to it. And, 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 and the guys are whispering, is it Jesus? Is it like, what do we do here? These guys are, they, they bumble through life most of the time, these, uh, these disciples, until this moment. And then to top it all off, he gets all intimate with Peter. I think the rest of the men that are around, and it sounds like it is only men at this point because they're fishing, uh, he starts to use love talk, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And he says it three times. And it was not so long ago that Peter had denied that he even knew Jesus three times. And we see what Jesus is doing here. He's redeeming, he's repairing three accidents into three victories. He's settling the course, open bracket, denials, close bracket. Peter gets the chance and is able to articulate, I love you, Jesus, I love you. So what, does he, what is he doing here? He helps Peter face his fall. And then he turns the thing upside down. He reshapes Peter's emotions. He corrects his self-message, re-Jesus. He dampens his guilt. He frees his soul. He renews Peter's passion to, all, to hang out with Jesus again because he seems to be back. They thought he was dead and gone, and here he is. And Peter is overwhelmed by Jesus' affection for him, his caring for him. How many times do we write people off when they've hurt us enough? You're done. 
Jesus puts him back together again, Humpty Dumpty. Last story, number four. Some time earlier on the famous Sermon on the Mount, not far from where the story I just told you took place, Jesus had preached the Sermon on the Mount, which those of us that have grown up in the church and studied the Bible always realized the Sermon on the Mount was sort of the, uh, the New Testament version of the Ten Commandments. It's sort of a religious thing. Uh, Jewish teaching always makes sure that you know that there are layers and layers and layers of meaning and new ways of, of, of understanding truth in, in Jewish and biblical teaching. And so not only is the Sermon on the Mount sort of the New Testament Ten Commandments, is also simply, I think, a best practices workshop that he's giving for how to love God and how to love your neighbor. If you want to live well, follow this, live like this. And so, well into the sermon, Jesus says this, and we're looking at Matthew 5, 38 to 42. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. If someone takes your outer garment, give him your undergarment too. If you're really reading and you're, you're, you're very literal, you know that a lot of the, the uh, translations talk about coat and cloak, and, and it's none of this undergarment, overgarment kind of stuff. My rabbis, again, uh, said that clearly the language there is overgarment and undergarment in there, uh, and we'll, you'll know why I said that in a minute. And he says, and then he f- finishes off, if someone forced you to walk one mile, walk the second one too. Let me give you a quick interpretation of this using the the biblical scholar Walter Wink, who has since passed away, and again, my three rabbi teachers who helped us to understand what really happened when Jesus was saying this. The rabbi said, when Jesus said to the crowds, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, he said there wouldn't have been a man, woman, or child who already knows the language that wouldn't have understood that what he's talking about is when a slave master a father or a husband slaps a woman or a child or a slave on the right cheek. How could he say that? Because in order to slap someone on the right, or the right cheek, you would have, assuming that, we're face, that they would be facing one another, it would have to be the back of a hand slap to the right cheek. We've always understood in the West that to turn the other cheek is to say, hit me on the other side again, to submit and to take it. The rabbis say, no, what is happening here is Jesus says, so turn the other cheek. Now, if a second hit is administered in this humiliation slap, which is what it is, it's meant to humiliate, the slap would now land in the middle of the face of the victim. It would no longer be deemed by that society as a humiliation slap anymore. It would now be considered an assault. And in nine times out of ten, the aggressor would then not administer the second hit. So by turning the other cheek, the victim challenges the assaulter to change his behavior. It's not submission. It's giving the aggressor a chance to be less assertive. So it's a teaching mode. He jumps then right to, if someone takes your outer garment, give him your undergarment too. Again, the rabbis say, the, everyone in the crowd would know who he's referring to now. He's talking to the money changers who live throughout parts of Jerusalem and along the edges of the temple. 
to make change for the, for the monies that are needed to put in the collection plate in the, uh, in the temple and or to pay debts that you have. The unscrupulous money changers, they would demand when somebody needed a drachma in the morning, he would demand that they give his outer, the, the lendi, uh, not only their coat, but their promise to come back. So he would take their coat and he would hold it to make sure they would come back for the coat, if not later in the day, at least some days hence, and he would then, of course, get his money back. The gracious ones wouldn't do that, but most of the money lenders weren't gracious. So here Jesus says, if somebody asks you for your outer cloak, and they say, oh yeah, that's the money lender, give him your under cloak too. What? What would a Middle Eastern man be wearing under his undercloak? Maybe a loincloth, maybe not. Remember what I said about nakedness before, or near nakedness. Now, Moshe is in the street without his outer garment and his undergarment, and people are saying, Moshe, where are your clothes? And he says, Guido has them. Who would ever go back to Guido again? The moneylenders wouldn't dare do it anymore because they'd lose all their business. It's a way of peacefully training the people to how not be abused by these guys. He jumps right to the next one before they can even have a discussion group on it. He says, if someone else forces you to walk one mile, walk the second two. Again, the entire crowd would know he's referring to the Roman soldiers who by law could force anyone to carry their, his stuff. But because the Romans had built roads all over and they'd put in milestones all the way, there was such a problem in all the defeated Roman lands that the emperor in Rome had finally made a rule from all the whining coming from all these countries, say, you know, we can't get anything done because we're carrying all your soldiers' junk around the country. So the Roman em emperor, realizing this was a bigger problem that they'd wanted to deal with, and they found records in Rome on this, which verified the story, that they made a rule that you could, a Roman soldier could only force you to carry to the next milestone. What does Jesus say? If someone makes you walk to the first milestone, walk to the second. You know what the rule was? What happened if it was found out that a Roman soldier made someone carry to the second stone? He lost his job and he lost his pension, which was a piece of farmland or a, or a garden somewhere. So now, if, if you've been pressed into carrying the soldier's knapsack and you come to the milestone and you keep going, now he's saying, no, put it down, put it down, put it down. And if enough people did it, they'd never ask anybody to carry anything again because they couldn't risk that these silly people wouldn't keep carrying it and risk their careers. And so my rabbis say what Jesus is doing here is nothing about submission. It's about peacefully, non-violently addressing the abuses that people are facing in that society. And to look at it in, in its holistic way, the, the issue of someone slapping you on the right, uh, women, children, and, sir, and slaves, it's the issue of domestic abuse. He's addressing domestic abuse. In the second one, he's addressing military abuse. In the third one, he's addressing, or in the second one, he's addressing financial abuse. The third one is official abuse. 
He empowers his listeners. He teaches them how to protect themselves. He teaches them how to work at attempting to change the world into a less violence, less power abuse place. And then he ends these listeners on the hill to move to finish here. Are brushed with Jesus' concern for them. Their daily concern for how they are being forced to live. And he gives them a small handle on how to make a difference. And they experience it as concern and love for them. So in this sermon series, Lessons in Love, The Challenge of Love, looking at 1 John 3, 11 to 24, these stories are meant to ask, how do we then love? And the writer of John comes along all these years later, and through the images of these four encounters of Jesus and the woman at the well, Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, Jesus and Peter in that turnaround, and Jesus teaching on the Galilean hillside, we get a sense, we get a deep sense of how Jesus gives his listeners the experience of love. Hold these encounters, if you can, the little snippets that we have been reminded of here, and listen to the words of First John, because he is answering, how do we then love? How do we then love? By listening to Jesus, by being asking another question the way he often did. When he was asked a question, he would answer with a question. Like Jesus? And the answer is, like Jesus. Same term. Listen to the text for today. And it speaks for itself. I think it needs no further explanation. It should be on the screen for you. This is what John says. It was probably articulated within 10 or 20 years of Jesus being present and then finally written down 60, 70 years later somewhere. This is what he writes. This is the original message we heard. We should love each other. We must not be like Cain who joined the evil one and then killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because he was deep in the practice of evil while the acts of his brother were righteous. So don't be surprised, friends, when the world hates you. This has been going on a long time. The way we know we've been transferred from death to life is that we love our brothers and sisters. Anyone who doesn't love is as good as dead. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know very well that eternal life and murder don't go together. This is how we've come to understand and experience love. Christ sacrificed his life for us. This is why we ought to live sacrificially for our fellow believers and not just be out for ourselves. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears. And you made it disappear. My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. This is the only way we'll know we're living truly, living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there is something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. And friends... Once that's taken care of and we're no longer 
accusing or condemning ourselves, we're bold and free before God. We're able to stretch our hands out and receive what we ask for because we're doing what he said, doing what pleases him. Again, this is God's command, to believe in his personally named son, Jesus Christ. He told us to love each other in line with the original command. As we keep his commands, we live deeply and surely in him as he lives in us. And this is how we experience his deep and abiding presence in us by the spirit he gave us.